So uh, today we're going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1 through chapter 23, verse 30. I'm not going to ask you to stand because we're going to read a substantial portion of text. Um, so if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Kings 22, uh, verse 1. That's where we'll start. And it says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozgoth. Those are awesome names. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them. For the money that is delivered into their hand, uh, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen, who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah uh, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Hakam and Achbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and they talked with her and she said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Uh, your, your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. Then the king sent all the elders 
of Judah in Jerusalem and were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophetess, the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the books of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those who also burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it in the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on ones left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars of that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook of Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Asherah, the abomination of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high places he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he saw tombs that were on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things." Then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let them be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. He sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 
And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in Jerusalem, uh, the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. For him, there was no king like him. Sorry, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I removed Israel, and I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, the house which I have said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Syria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went out to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in the chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word builds your people. Your people are scattered in this uh, current environment. And we just ask that even in the midst of being scattered and apart from one another, that you would use your word to build us up into your body, to make us the body of Christ, to show us the glory of yourself in the face of Jesus, to allow us to be transformed from one degree of glory to the other as we continually glimpse that in Jesus' face. Lord, fill us with your spirit even now. Shed your love abroad in our hearts. Um, Show us what Christ has done on the cross. And as we look at the rule and reign of Josiah, uh, show us where Jesus is at in this text and what this text should be speaking to us and what we need to do, what we need to uh, kill in our lives, the sins and the idols that we need to kill in our lives. And then also, Lord, the the right practices, the right worship um, things that we also need to put into our lives. Lord, all this is for your worship, and we know that truly when we worship you, Lord, we find our true joy and delight in you. Be with us, uh, erase anything that I say that is not of you, and uh, emphasize anything that I say that is of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question that I'm considering today is, who is the goat, the greatest of all time? This question is normally asked in uh, the context of the National Basketball Association, uh, and usually uh, the, the answer is crystal clear for most people's uh, minds that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. However, in recent years, there's this other guy named LeBron who's made a name for himself, and, it, and his name now is commonly thrown out uh, before Michael Jordan. And those, generally speaking, are the two people that are talked about Uh, when you talk about the GOAT. A third name, uh, Kobe Bryant, is thrown out sometimes um, as well in the conversation. But for the most part, it comes down to MJ and uh, LeBron. Uh, Humanity has made some uh, huge achievements. 
all right, that all have arguments for a quote-unquote goat status, the greatest of all time. So to name a few, I'm just going to name two quick ones. Uh, Desmond Doss, right, served as a medic during World War II. Uh, he valued life so much that he refused to carry a gun so that he wouldn't take life. He went into the most deadly war of all time with the intent of only saving life. And in one battle, the Battle of Okinawa, he saved 75 lives of his own troops. And then he even tried to save some of the lives of his enemies. All right. And uh, so one battle, 75 lives. In the whole war, he didn't carry a gun. He just saved uh, people. He just served as a medic. He died in 2006. How about another example? This one coming from the Renaissance. Michelangelo, not to be confused with the Ninja Turtle, but rather the painter. He was commissioned by various popes to do the works of art, for none of them were more famous than his fresco made on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican Palace. Uh, so here's a few quick facts on that. They originally, the, the Sistine Chapel paintings, they originally covered 10,000 square feet. They involved 343 figures, over half of which exceeded 10 feet and half, and it took him a total of four years to complete this work. There are plenty of humans out there that can, we can make cases for in regards to goat status, greatest of all time. Uh, what is it that causes us, I wonder, to obsess with talks of, uh, you know, the greatest of all time, or making history, or legacy, or who is the best? What is this constant attitude that we're constantly comparing our own work with the works of others, or we're comparing other works, other people's works with the works of others? It almost seems impossible to go a single day without comparing someone's achievements with someone else's achievements. And so in this uh, sermon, we're going to do just that. We're going to compare achievements uh, quote unquote, we're going to particularly look at the reign of Josiah and we're going to we're going to ask the question, is this the best king of Judah in Israel? So in the analogy, if we're going to stretch it too far, David is MJ, Hezekiah is Kobe and Josiah is LeBron. And so we're going to look at this and see which one is the goat, the greatest of all time. So just to give a little bit of context to this chapter 21, uh, which we did not read, uh, gives us the the. The 57 absolute terrible years preceding the reign of Josiah. So we're dropping into Israel or Judah in particular uh, after 57 straight years of just evil, idolatrous kings. And so the first one is Manasseh. This is Josiah's grandfather, and he ruled and reigned for 55 years. Some highlights for him was he set up all kinds of idols and um, various ways of worshiping different gods within the temple of God himself. So he set that up. Another kind of highlight for him is in 2 Kings 21.6, he sacrifices his own son on an altar to likely Moloch, um, the, the god that usually people sacrifice their children to. Uh, Ammon, his son, comes to the throne, and he dies within two years. And then the, the Bible's testimony of him is he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Josiah comes to the throne at the super mature and ripe age of eight. He is eight years old and he is now the king of Israel, of Judah. And so our first kind of thing that we're going to look at, his first accomplishment that we're going to, we're going to look at in light of uh, David uh, is this. Josiah rediscovered the word of God. He read the word of God. He repented according to the word of God. And he requested more words from God. 
And this is going to come to us from chapters 22, verse 1, all the way through 23, verse 3. And so you really can tell a lot about a person, and I would say particularly a king, but definitely any person. You can tell a lot about that person to how they react when they receive God's word, when they hear God's word, how they react to it. And so Josiah is described in verse 2 as this. He did uh, what was right in the sight of Yahweh. And he also is described as he walked in all the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. This turning aside to the right or to the left is an allusion to Deuteronomy 5.32. And it says this, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And so Josiah is described as being almost a fulfillment of this Deuteronomy 5.32 uh, verse. But it was in the 18th year of the king when he finds the word of God. And so verse 3 says this, it gives us the phrase, in the, the 18th year of King Josiah, right? And now I want to point out some, this is just a quick side note. So verse 3 of chapter 22 says, in the 18th year of King Josiah, flash forward all the way to chapter 23 and verse 3. And it also says the same phrase, in the 18th year of King Josiah. This is what, uh, this is a literary device called an inclusio. You might think of it like a bookshelf. You put two same phrases at the end, and it holds together all the things in the middle. And so from 23, sorry, from 22, verse 3, all the way to 23, 23, uh, we have a bookend. It's one text uh, talking about during the 18th year of Josiah, all these things are going to take place. And so this literary device holds it all together. So what, what happens in his 18th year? Well, in the 18th year, he sends Shapan, his secretary, to the house of Yahweh to kind of deliver payment. He's trying to get the... We've seen this over and over throughout the reigns of the most recent kings that they're, they're trying to essentially rebuild the house of the Lord. Uh, some of them have success, some of them don't. And so while this guy, uh, Shapan, is doing this, he goes to Hilkiah, he gives him the money, and then Hilkiah apparently gives the money to the workers. And sometime during the work, they discover a copy of the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. It says this in verse 8, Hilkiah found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And so the word was rediscovered. Now, I don't know, like, what's going on. This is likely referring to the personal copy that the king makes, and then they keep it into the law. But it seems at some point in time during the reign, the 57 years of terror during uh, Manasseh and his son Ammon, the, the law was completely disregarded so much to where you didn't even know where the copy of the law was in the temple. And so Hilkiah discovers the book of the law. He then gives it to Shaphan, the secretary, and Shaphan reads the book of the law. And then what does Shaphan do with it? He brings it to Josiah, and in verse 10, he reads it to Josiah. And verse 11 tells us, how does Josiah respond? Because again, we started this off by saying, you can tell a lot about a person by how they respond. And so verse 11 says this, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, why did he tear his clothes? Uh, this is, generally speaking, the practice that people do when they're one of repentance, they see sin and they know that they need to turn their hearts. They're literally symbolizing that they're tearing their hearts in half. They're broken. So it's a mourning. It's a sorrow. And usually it's in terms of because of a death has happened, something tragic has happened. Or it can be just there's great sin in the land. And so he tears his clothes. And the text is actually going to tell us 
why he tore his clothes. So if we look later on in verse 13, he's going to send a bunch of guys. He's going to take it from now. It's, it was one person, Hilkiah, to Shaphan, to Josiah. Now Josiah is going to recruit five people and send them to a prophet. In verse 13, he recruits Hilkiah, Ahiakim, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asiah. Say that ten times fast. Uh, to consult a prophet, to hear from Yahweh on his behalf. And this is what he tells them to say. Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So why did he rend his clothes? It's because when he read this book, he saw, he looked at the picture this book painted, he looked at his people, and he saw a completely different picture. They were disobeying the words of the law, and he knew that the wrath of God was great upon his people. So another quick side note here. What exactly is being read? Is this like the entire Bible? Is this the first five books of the Bible? Is this just one book? Uh, Likely... We don't know for sure, but likely it's the book of Deuteronomy that's being read. So I'm going to give just a couple quick reasons. First, at the beginning of Josiah's reign, he's compared to Deuteronomy 5. At the end of Josiah's reign, and we'll see this later, he's going to be compared to Deuteronomy 6. And then uh, this, this worry over the wrath of God due to disobedience seems to come right out of Deuteronomy 27 through 28, which lists off the many curses that come upon the ones who disobey the words of the law. Also, this phrase, the book of the law, occurs identically in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. And so Deuteronomy is going to be referenced several times throughout this text, and so likely that's the book that was read uh, before the king himself. And so what, what, is, what does he do? So he sees the word, and now he sends out to inquire more. He reads the word, he repents because of it, And he sends people out because he wants to know how this word applies to him in the future. Commentator Philip Riken says it this way. Josiah read God's word. He believed God's word. He obeyed God's word. And he also wanted to know the implications of God's word for the future. So how does it apply to me now in the future of Judah? So he goes to the prophetess. uh, The prophetess Holden. Now, she might be Jeremiah's aunt. Uh, If her husband, who's mentioned as Shulam, is the same one from the book of Jeremiah. She prophesies during the same time as Jeremiah. Jeremiah is around during the the reign of King Josiah and also Josiah's son Jehoiakim. Um, And so she's going to give a a word to him. And it's broken really into two parts. The first one just really confirms what Josiah already believed. She says to him uh, that the curses of Deuteronomy are rightfully upon Judah and God will carry out those curses. You're right, Josiah. Um, And then the second word is specifically to Josiah himself. And she's going to say that, Josiah, you're going to go to your grave, to your fathers, and you're go to your grave in peace. Uh, Side note here, um, and this is uh, when we're talking about sharing the word with one another, edifying one another, encouraging one another. um, This is uh, from Philip Riken, commentator. I totally agree with him. He says this, that Huldah, the prophetess, is kind of a foreshadowing of God's future fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 through 29. And by the way, that's fulfilled in Acts 2 during Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes out. And it says this, even all my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so uh, he says this, her presence is a sign of things to come. 
It is also a reminder that godly women have something to teach us. When a woman speaks God's truth, a wise man listens to what she says. And so in, in our everyday conversations with one another, God's spirit has been poured out on both man and woman. And thus they can equally speak God's word into each other's lives. And so a wise man listens to a woman who is uh, um, telling, uh, speaking from God's word. And so uh, verse 17, I want to bring our attention to this. The personal pronoun, me and my, is used, and it really just shows you, I think, the pain that's on God's heart here. It says this in verse 17. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. God here is is, um, upset, obviously, clearly. Uh, so the king wasn't done with God's word yet. So he rediscovered it. He read it. He sent out people to inquire more from um, Holda uh, about God's word, but he's not done yet. In chapter 23, verses 1 through 2, he gathers all the elders of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, including the priests. And then the king read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. And in verse 3, it says the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh. And the people took a stand for the covenant as well. And so he reads God's word to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the elders of Judah so then they could uh, presumably go out and read it to their people as well. And then he reinstitutes or reinstates the covenant promise that he puts himself and the people back into the covenant found in that book. And so this is kind of our first uh, achievement, pretty great achievement by Josiah. But I want to give two just kind of practical implications for us remedy church that we can take and apply to our own lives first take note of the reading cycle going on here it started with one it was given to another it was then read the book was then passed to the king and was read to him he then sent out five people to consult a sixth person and then he read it before all the elders of the kingdom in all of jerusalem this this is multiplication and it sounds a whole lot like discipleship right and so here's some questions that we can ask of ourselves or just really one question who are we discipling in the word who are we so first we're reading it and then who are we then reading it to because that's really just a good summary of what it means to disciple one another we're reading god's word we're broken over the things that we don't find in our own lives we're repentant and then we're bringing it to someone else maybe it's one person maybe it's five million people and that cycle could you might you know who knows you might end up some prominent business leader who has the ear of thousands of people, you're reading the word to him, and then he gathers his thousands of people like Josiah gathered uh, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so we need to be a part of that. We need to be discipling people in the word by reading it and giving it to others. Uh, The second thing is, note Josiah's reception of God's word, even when it wasn't favorable. He read God's word and basically it told him, my wrath is on you and all the people of Judah. He was told both by Deuteronomy and by the prophetess that Judah was doomed to suffer under the wrath of God. He doesn't rejoice that he'll die in peace like Hezekiah just before him did. Hezekiah also had a similar mercy and he just kind of rejoiced. Oh, it's not going to happen during my reign. But instead, he sets out to reform the kingdom anyways. When your heart belongs to Christ, you will want to obey him even if the reward is not seemingly in sight. 
And so like Josiah, we also should read God's word, even if it doesn't seem favorable to us. And we should obey him because simply put, God is worth it. He's worthy of our obedience. So Josiah is looking like a pretty good uh, goat candidate, maybe better than David. We'll see. Uh, So we're going to look at another um, accomplishment of him, another greatest of all time accomplishment. And the second one is this. And again, we're using ours. The first point we said, uh, you know, I got to point out our alliteration here. He rediscovered, he read, he repented, and he requests more of God's word. And now he's going to, Josiah is going to, he reformed the kingdom of Judah and he reunited the divided kingdoms. Now I put reunited in quotes because he doesn't completely reunite it, but he does start to reunite it. This is coming to us from chapter 23, verses 4 through 20. So these verses are going to outline and go into detail the, inten- the intentionality and the intensity by which King Josiah is going to reform his kingdom. Uh, commentator Dale Davis summarizes the passage saying this. Fittingly, uh, chapter 23 verses 4 through 20 describe 12 of Josiah's actions. A numerological sign that he is performing a 12-fold purging. He's reforming all 12 of the tribes of Israel. And so goats must be judged not by merely their knowledge about the game. In this case, Josiah's knowledge about God's law. But they must be judged by how they play the game. Or in this case, how uh, Josiah is going to implement God's law into his life, into the lives of others. In Josiah's case, he has many, many, many victories. uh, At least 12 actions, right? Uh, According to Dale Davis. But we're just going to kind of look at three-ish. So the first one is this. Uh, He started out by reforming everything. He started at the temple, and slowly but surely it radiates out into Jerusalem, and then it radiates even further out to Judah, and it then begins to radiate even further out into Samaria. This actually follows the same pattern um, that we see in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fills the church. It starts in Jerusalem, it radiates out to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually the ends of the earth. And so he's, he's almost even like preluding that idea. So his reform is radiating out, and eventually it's going to go in, even into the northern kingdom, the Israel, uh, who was taken into captivity by Assyria. And what does he do? He burns the idols, and he grounds them down, or grinds them, I don't know the proper verbiage there, into dust. And he sprinkles them outside of Jerusalem into the fields of Kidron. And this was in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 7.25, which says this. The carved images of their gods, talking about the Canaanites, you shall burn with fire. And so this included with verse 13, uh, this, this burning of idols and knocking down um, pillars and all this stuff. This also included things, uh, look at verse 13, some of the high places that all the way back to Solomon himself, he had built uh, for foreign gods after he began to worship them uh, when his, you know, his many marriages to foreign wives. Uh, T.R. Hobbes tells us this, the Kidron. So why is he grinding, you know, these things down and sprinkling them in Kidron? Why does that come, come up so many times? Kidron was an area used as a necropolis, a city of the dead. From at least the time of the first temple, archaeological remains still stand as testimony to this day. The graveyard was a suitable and symbolic place to put dead idols. And so he's literally taking these idols and he's putting them in a place that everyone would have associated with. This is where the dead go, because that's what these idols are. They're just dead. They'll lead to death and they themselves are death. Um, So our second work for Josiah 
uh, commentator Philip Ryken summarizes it well. Josiah descended into hell, figuratively speaking. For the valley of Hinnom was Jerusalem's place for burning refuse. Jesus knew it as Gehenna and used the valley as an image of everlasting judgment. In verse 10, it says this, And he defiled, Josiah, And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. He ended the very practice that his grandfather had practiced in sacrificing his own son. And figuratively, he goes to Gehenna, right? This, this signpost of burning refuse. And he tears down this altar that people used to take their children to, to sacrifice to Moloch. Our third uh, kind of reform here comes to us from verses 15 through 20. And it outlines how Josiah goes to Bethel and he pulls down the altar there that Jeroboam, son of Nabat, uh, had set up. By the way, Jeroboam, he was, uh, you had Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king. He gives this infamous pinky speech where he basically says, I'm ten times the man as my father Solomon. And then the tribes break in half. And half of them follow Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and they become the northern kingdom, which is now in Assyria because they've been taken off into exile. So this Jeroboam, to keep his people from going back to Jerusalem, he sets up two golden calves. One of them he set up in Bethel, and it is this altar that Josiah is now getting rid of. All right. This is also the famous Jeroboam that all the way throughout Kings serves as an evil, disdainful uh, refrain. Right. And it says it says some usually at the end of a king, it says something along the lines of uh, this. Uh, but they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. So now Josiah is departing from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nadab, uh, Nabat. And he even while doing this unknowingly until the people tell him fulfills a 300 year old prophecy given to a man of God from Judah. And he leaves his grave untouched in honor of God's word spoken so long ago. And if you want to see more of this, this is from 1 Kings 13. That story is highlighted. And just kind of a side note here. 300 years later, God's word was fulfilled. God grows things slowly, but he always fulfills his word. Never once does he not fulfill his word. So in summary, Josiah here goes back to the future. He erases all of the idolatry of the kings from Solomon all the way down to Jeroboam, all the way down to his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon, and restores the kingdom, and he begins to reunite the kingdom, geographically speaking, all the way back to the golden age of Solomon. So implications for us from this. What, what, what can we take and apply to ourselves? When the people of God believe and obey the word of God, the idolatry of false gods don't stand a chance. It doesn't stand a chance in our lives. When we, uh, when we you know... If you want to fight idolatry in your life, it starts with the word of God. You read God's word, you believe God's word, and it gives you the strength and the energy to then kill idols. And so let's ask the question, could David really do this? If David was in Josiah's place, could he really do what he did? Could he reform all of the kingdom, start to reunite it, and bring it back to the reign of Solomon in the midst of all of that idolatry? Surely we can say that Josiah is the greatest of all time when it comes to kings. But let's look at one more thing. Let's keep comparing people with people. Uh, the third thing is this. Josiah reinstitutes the Passover feast. And it was like no other Passover. 
And this is a very short point. It comes from 2 Kings 23, verses 21 through 25. The reputation of Josiah doesn't stop at the removal of false worship. He goes a step further and he starts to reinstitute practices of right worship. He doesn't just get rid of idolatry, but he also starts putting into place the practices of right worship. It says this, uh, he commands all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book, in this book of the covenant. Uh, and it says this, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. It's not that there were no Passovers done in between these times. We know Joshua celebrated the Passover. We know likely that every single year during the, the, the reign and rule of David, the Passover is celebrated. Solomon as well. We know that Hezekiah celebrates the Passover during his reign. But Josiah's Passover was on a whole new scale, a whole new uh, scale in terms of size. The whole nation celebrated it under his command. Um, and then Peter Lightheart proclaims this of Josiah. He says this, Josiah is a Moses who conforms to the law and destroys golden calves. And now we might add, reinstitutes the Passover feast. So what's the implications for us here? In our killing of sin, we're not just supposed to kill our sin. Put on Christ as well. Don't just put away sinful practices, but put on the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Worship God in the way God commands. We're not just trying to not do wrong. We're also trying to see what does he demand of us? How should we walk before him? And we're supposed to put those things uh, in our lives. So don't just kill your sin. Put on Christ as well. And so uh, I think the goat conversation should be over. I'm going to let 2 Kings speak for itself. Verse 25 says this. Before him, talking about Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah is given a commendation that comes straight out of Deuteronomy 6, 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, sorry, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A man after the Shema itself, the Deuteronomy 6 Shema. Surely this is the greatest of all time in terms of kings. If I'm a Jew at this point in history, I'm likely coming to the conclusion pretty quickly that this man, this King Josiah, is the Messiah. He's the snake stomper, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, whose throne will have no end. Look at his accomplishments. He returns the law to the people. He reforms the land and gets rid of all of idolatry. He reunites the kingdom and he walks with the Lord with all of his heart, soul and strength. No more conversations to be had. He's the goat. Except the text doesn't end here. And so we got to keep reading. And there's a fourth point, and it's not a very good or flattering accomplishment in terms of asking, are you the greatest of all time? Number four says this, Josiah is no goat king. He's just another dead king. Second Kings 23, verses 26 through 30. Uh, This is where this is coming from. Verse 26 turns everything that we've said before this point on its head. And it says this. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. 
27 tells us that God still plans to remove Judah out of his sight in the same way he removed the northern kingdom. And we know this happens in 586 around then uh, to Babylon. They're going to take him into exile. So uh, commentator Kiel points out this. Uh, the first 10 chapters of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, by the way, he was a prophet during the reign of Josiah and his son. The first 10 chapters of Jeremiah, uh, who was reigning during, uh, he was a prophet during the, his son and Josiah, show that even in light of all that Josiah did, there was still, a, I quote, deep inward apostasy of the people from the Lord. Not only before and during Josiah's reforms, but also afterwards. And in summary, Josiah's righteousness wasn't even enough to overturn the wickedness of his grandfather, Manasseh. Verse 28 through 30, take it even further. Josiah goes out on an ill-advised battle with Egypt. By the way, the, the, the story is given a little bit more in depth in Second Chronicles under Josiah's reign as well, if you want to see it. He goes out on an ill-advised battle with Egypt. Egypt, literally, the Pharaoh Necho basically was like, I don't have anything to do with you. I'm fighting Assyria. Leave me alone. Josiah goes out nonetheless, and he's shot in the Second Chronicles account. He's shot by a random arrow at Megiddo, and he dies. In verse 30 in Second Kings says this, And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. He's dead. Uh, before we pick up on this, I want to take another little side excursion, a side note. Uh, Holda, our prophetess, right? Her prophecy said he would go to his grave in peace. So what's going on here? It's not referring to him dying of old age, obviously. I don't even think it's referring peace in terms of all of Israel's at peace. There's no war going on because he's literally dying in a battle against Egypt. What's likely being referred to here is God is going to remove Judah to Babylon. Josiah is going to go to his grave in peace before God removes his people uh, from his face. That's what's likely going on here. And so Babylon, um, so all this talk of goat, right? We're talking about David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, throw in some other names. They all have one more thing in common other than being great kings. They're dead, right? For all his greatness in helping people, Desmond Doss is dead. For all the lovely art still left to us by Michelangelo, he's dead. And how does God advise his people how does God advise his people in regards to dead rulers or dead kings? Psalm 146, one of the five hallelujah psalms, because it begins with the word hallelujah and ends with the word hallelujah, which just means praise Yahweh. Psalm 144, sorry, 146, verses 3 through 4 say this. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. There is no salvation to be found in any of these great accomplishments of mankind, much less the greatest kings to ever live. In summary, let's look at kings kind of overall, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. 1 Kings 1 through 11 recounts the, the wisdom of Solomon, but he abandons the word of God. And wisdom is not enough to save him or his people. And here we now have a king who followed the law with all his heart, soul, and strength, and yet it's not enough to save him or his people. Peter Lightheart uh, summarizes it this way. Near the end of 2 Kings, the narrator writes a two-chapter description of the perfect Torah-observant king, Josiah. Yet he cannot save Ju Ju uh, Judah from destruction. Wisdom and Torah observance cannot reverse generations of idolatry. For all these accomplishments, they cannot save. The law and wisdom are not enough to save, so we might ask the question, 
What is, if not wisdom, in God's very own law? And who is, if not David or Josiah? And this brings us to our fifth point, and our final point. And it's, it's this. Jesus Christ is the only man who died, came back from the dead, and lives evermore. Jesus Christ is the only man who died, came back from the dead, and lives evermore. And we're getting this from our text. is going to be Zechariah 12, verse 11, through 13, verse 1. And you might be like, well, dude, you can't jump from 2 Kings to Jesus to Zechariah. In this text, this is a prophecy written about 2,500 years ago. It literally connects the death of Jesus, which we'll see, to the death of Josiah. There is textual reasons for why we are here in Zechariah, this prophecy. And so uh, let, me, let, me just, uh, let me just kind of catch us up here. Uh, all of humanity has died, really, in Josiah. What I mean by that is, think of all the accomplishments. We did a few, right? Think of all the, the, the dreams, the hopes, all the things that we can possibly think of, the technological aspirations, whatever it might be. All those things really are represented here in the death of Josiah. The grave will find you. There is no escape from the grave. These accomplishments have done ultimately, even though they might benefit generations in the future, those generations in the future are also going to die. That is a temporal benefit at most. And so at the end of the day, all of, all of humanity really can be summarized in this death of Josiah. And it really just teaches us this lesson, right? The wages of sin is death. We don't just merely need an accomplishment or an achievement. We need something to cleanse us from our sin. That was our problem. Uh, now, that was Josiah and the people of Judah's problem then. And so, um, this Zechariah chapter, this, this uh, prophecy, 2,500 years ago, says this. I'm just going to read 10 through 11 first. And I will pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And I want to point out something here. There are two mournings. Right? Two sadnesses, times of sadness being mentioned in this text. First, the sadness of this person whom we're going to look upon when we, you know, we pierced him right, with a spear or stabbed him somehow. And then there's another sadness. That sadness is going like, to be like this other sadness. The mourning from Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. That's literally referring to all of Israel. They were, they were like amped up, right? the climax of King Josiah. And then he gets shot by this random area arrow in Megiddo and the mourning of the land was great. And so this death of this person who stabbed and the sadness that results thereof is connected to the death of Josiah and the sadness that results thereof. And so who is this person who was pierced, who was stabbed? John 19, by the way, John 19 is the crucifixion story of Jesus in the gospel of John. John 19, after Jesus dies on the cross and they're about to break his legs, but before they do, they decide to see if he's dead. They thrust a spear up into his side and it, it goes likely into his heart and it proves that he's dead. And then blood and water kind of trickle out of his side. A little bit later, John writes this in verse 37 of chapter 19. 
And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced in reference to Jesus himself. And so John identifies Zechariah as a specific messianic prophecy about the death of Christ. And so here we have yet another death of another king, another death of a human prince. But is there anything more to be said about this death? Is there any hope to be found or is this just, no pun intended, another dead end for humanity? Two things stick out in particular. Verse 10 in Zechariah Zechariah 12 tells us that uh, to look on him whom they have pierced is in a sense equivalent with looking at God himself. I'll read the verse. When they look on me, that's God speaking in this text. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And so Jesus is very much a human king, a man of flesh and blood, but he's not only a man, he is God. In a very real sense, when we look on Jesus, we are looking on God himself. And that bears out all the way throughout the entire book of John. John picks up on that and just goes all the way throughout. The word, you know, in the beginning was the word. Uh, We'll get into that later, right? Uh, So the second thing here, all right, comes to us from chapter 13, 1. So verses 12 through 14 describes more of the mourning, the sadness that's going on. And then after verse 14 is chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, on that day, the day where they're mourning for the person that they uh, stabbed. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, Jesus did die, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead and opened up a fountain for all to come to be cleansed from their sin and their uncleanness. You know, The testimony is before us. We have it, right? The facts of the empty tomb, the upstart of Christianity itself, uh, the death of Christ. We have all these historical facts that you go atheist to Christian alike. Historians agree that these historical facts are here. And still to this day, the best explanation of those historical facts are the resurrection account of Jesus. There's no other explanation that's been offered. There's no other scholarly counter argument that holds any weight to explain these facts that except for Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And so in light of the resurrection, we need to reanalyze this goat king argument, the greatest of all time. So I'm going to list off some of Jesus's achievements. Jesus didn't merely rediscover and read the word, but rather he was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1:14. And he was the word who was in the beginning who was with God and who was God, John 1.1. He walked among us, speaking words and teaching us directly from the Father. He taught us God's word and he embodied God's word perfectly, for he himself was God's word. That's a pretty great accomplishment. He healed lepers, made the unclean clean with his touch. He forgave the sinful of their sins. He commanded the storms to cease. He rebuked and cast out demons from the possessed. In summary, he ransacked Satan's house, bound him, and took all of his treasure from him. That's a pretty great accomplishment. He himself is the Passover in the realest sense. He, like a lamb, went to his death and took upon himself the sins of his people and paid the absolute penalty, namely the wrath of God and death itself. He descended into the real Gehenna and absorbed all of its hellish fires for his people. 
There were no abatements extended to him concerning God's wrath so that there might be every abatement extended to us who believe in him and follow him. That's a pretty great accomplishment. When all hope seemed to be at an end of a flickering, barely burning wick, when death had fully encompassed him and darkness had overtaken him for three days, on the third day, the stone rolled away and he came to life. No longer, because of this, no longer does 2 Kings twenty three twenty six read, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. But instead, it reads for us who believe in Jesus and repent of our sins, it reads, no longer, no longer, the wrath of God is no longer upon us. He has turned from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against us, Due to all the provocations with which we have provoked him, his wrath has been taken by another. The love and wrath of God met and kissed upon the cross of Christ. And I just want to quote um, famous artist uh, Andrew Peterson in a song, uh, His Heart Beats. Uh, it's talking about the resurrection. And this is, really, this is really what the resurrection should lead us to is worship, singing, joyful singing and rejoicing in our hearts. Uh, He writes this, his heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace from God is racing through his veins. His heart beats, his heart beats. God breathes in, his living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. His word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. His heart beats. Crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of all. He took one breath and put death to death. Amen and amen. Jesus is the greatest of all time. Will remain the greatest of all time forever. He is no goat king. He is the lamb king roaring like a lion, alive and well, bidding all to come to him and receive life, to bend our knees in faith and to bend our hearts in repentance. And so I encourage you all, Remedy, just to reflect on this and just believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are glorious. And Christ really is the greatest of all time. Because what are all these accomplishments if we are stuck in the grave at some point in time? And yet, Jesus has restored to us the greatest accomplishment ever of mankind, and that's life itself. The fact that God has given us life, and he took it away from us because of sin, but he has restored it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, teach us just to worship as a scattered people. This is still Resurrection Sunday. Teach us to worship and glorify Jesus and to think highly uh, of his resurrection. Allow us to feed us and to give us energy to love our neighbors well and to love each other well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.